0: This podcast episode is powered by AfriPods, the world's number one podcasting platform for African stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another amazing episode of the Kenyan Wall Street podcast. As usual, I am your host, Prince Muragori. I'm the resident economist here at the Kenyan Wall Street. And today, I am happy to be joined by a team of two economists. So best believe you're going to talk about issues macro from some of the best players in the game. And these two economists are from Renaissance Capital. Um, As you might know, earlier this month, on the 9th and 10th of September, Renaissance Capital held the 6th annual East Africa Investor Conference. And it was a very, very insightful discussion for those who might have had a chance to look at it. If not, you can always visit the website. And um, on the first day, there was a panel discussion, um, which was a macro panel uh, involving these two economists. And um, I shall introduce the two economists. First off, we have Mr. Charlie Robertson. And uh, Charlie is uh, an economist uh, with Rencap, Renaissance Capital. He is a global uh, economist there. and very, very well versed with matters, um emerging markets, macro political, macro, macro and geopolitical issues. Um and and that's 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 Charles for you. I'm sure many of you might have seen him on Twitter. Um he shares a lot of good insights, good chats. And um we're going to definitely hear a lot from him. So, Charles, the global chief economist at Renaissance Capital, how are you? Can you hear me? I'm
1: um, very good. And just for any of your listeners who haven't had a chance to, um, to see your profile picture, you in a dinner jacket looking extremely smart and very cool, I have to say. <laughs> Thank well, you.
0: Ahead, Thank you very much, Charles. Thank you. Um, and, and we are definitely very excited for this one. You know, we don't usually have uh, as many economists as we would hope. And so we're definitely happy to have you on board. Uh, and next up, we have Yvonne Mhango who is the Sub-Saharan Africa Economist and Head of Research of Sub-Saharan Africa at Renaissance Capital. Yvonne, how are you doing?
2: I'm very well, thanks. And I'm very excited to be on your podcast today. And uh, hello to your listeners.
0: Okay, very well. So, guys, as you know, this is an interesting time to be having a discussion with economists because 2020 is definitely one of those years where there is a lot to talk about. And, um... Charles, I'd like like to pose my first question to you. As you know, it being the COVID-19 pandemic here, we have to sort of kick off our discussion based on that. And as as most people know that this COVID-19 shock has not been the usual one-sided or one market side shock. It has been a multifaceted shock. You know, it affected the demand side, the supply side, even the financial sector side. And many countries, many, many countries have seen historic declines in GDP growth, particularly Western economies. However, when we look at Africa, we see that the data indicates that African countries haven't uh, been as badly hit by COVID, by the COVID shock compared to other countries, which is a big, big relief for the continent. And Charles, I'd like you to talk about why, why is this the case um, that Africa sort of um, has proved a bit more resilient and what does this What does this mean for Africa's economic competitiveness in the new decade? Over to you, Charles.
1: Um, I mean, I think we we took our our first positive take on, on the virus back in February, March, when the Chinese data for the first thousand deaths showed what age uh people were were tending to die in high numbers from this from from covid and it was really painful for the for anybody over the age of 80 mm-hmm. um and, and with the, half as deadly if you were aged 70 to 80 and, and less than half as deadly again if you were aged 60 to 70. Um, and and we did a quick demographic check of the world and and we found that the the vulnerable population was the lowest in the world in Africa, because of the youth of the continent. The numbers of of people who were over 80 years old in countries like Nigeria and Kenya, and Mm -hmm. it was, when we rounded it to the nearest uh, whole number, is zero percent. So that told us that we were not likely to get a significant number of deaths. relative to developed markets. And that has meant that we haven't had to have the the long, severe lockdowns that so much of Europe or or some states in the US have had to do um, in order to keep the virus under control because the virus wasn't such a threat. Um, And we've begun to see that in the data. Um, So, Yvonne did a piece the other day about Nigeria's GDP dropping about 6%, I think it was, in the second quarter. Um, We've seen figures double that, three times that, um, in in Western economies. And and Western economies not only are older, but also much more sensitive to a hit to retail, to tourism, to leisure, Um, all of these areas where much more significant parts of the economy. Um, and, and therefore the, the hits to those sectors um, has really, really hurt. Uh, again, there's a much greater dependency on say agriculture, uh, which might be 2% of GDP in, in the UK, but could be 20, 25% of GDP in sub, sub-Saharan countries. Um, and agriculture just doesn't, you know, the crops still grow even if the virus is, is happening. Um, so it just, that's also helped. And so I, what I think is so important about this is that when we had the global financial crisis back in 2008-9, what was really striking to investors globally was that frontier markets, African markets, South Asian markets, managed to get through the crisis uh, with, with much less pain than it is because they weren't so dependent on the banking system and on all the leverage That really hit the West um, in the the 2008 9 crisis. But they got through that crisis with less pain. And hopefully, they're going to get through this crisis with less pain. And then I'm hoping the global investors in the 2020s will look back and say, well, who outperformed? Which economies should I be investing in which don't get whacked in the same way that everybody else does when we get a global recession? And I'm hoping they'll put more money to work in Africa and, and we'll see
0: faster growth in Africa as a result of that. Okay, thank you. Um, and just to follow up on that issue, Yvonne, um, Renaissance Capital created a ranking, a sort of a Composite Resilience Core ranking that you know, it looked at how swiftly a country is likely to recover from the COVID-19 shock. And um, it looked at you know key sectors of the local economy, such as agriculture, tourism, global trade, um, and how these are insulated from the global economies. And, then, and it also looked at the size of buffers, government and household buffers, such as budget balance, public debt, debt and GDP capita growth. And what's interesting is that for the African countries that were ranked, for the sub-Saharan African countries, um, among the top five were three East African countries. We had Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Rwanda. And so we saw East African countries performing exceptionally well. And uh, my question to you would be what unique capabilities enable the East African countries to be more resilient compared to other countries in the continent? And subsequently, what does this mean for the East African communities' economic competitiveness in the new decade? Over to you, Imam.
2: Thanks, Prince. Yes. Yeah, so early in the year, we, we established uh, what we called a, a resilience school for our countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And we basically looked at the resilience under, uh, according to two main um, indicators or broad indicators. So under one umbrella, we had um, indicators that reflected how insulated those economies were from the rest of the economy. Basically, the argument being that Uh, The more insulated they were, the less exposed they were to global dynamics, um, the more protected they would be and the less hit they'll be by the crisis. The other broad umbrella of indicators uh, was the buffers uh, that these countries had, and this was both on the government side as well as on the household front. Now, East Africa scored particularly well because... um, of a sizable agriculture sector. And that was an indicator that fell under the um, um, the broad umbrella of how insulated they are from the global economy. And the argument there is that if you have a sizable agriculture sector, given the nature of agriculture, particularly in our part of the world, it wouldn't be as impacted by the crisis because it tends to occur uh, in outlying areas in the countryside. There's less congestion there, so less chance of uh, catching the virus. And also, um, aside from the cash crops that are grown on the continent, a lot of, uh, most of what is grown uh, in our part of the world is for domestic consumption and in a lot of cases, subsistence. Uh, So that shouldn't be impacted by a fall in global demand. Now, East Africa, as you uh, rightly know, has a large agriculture sector. So in our view, as long as agriculture grew, as long as there's rainfall, you would see the economy grow, as we saw in the first quarter of this year, for Kenya. And we're expecting a similar performance in the rest of the year for Kenya. The other reason uh, why uh, East Africa fared pretty well, uh, in case of Tanzania in particular, is because it does have buffers on the fiscal side. And by that, I mean a relatively small uh, budget deficit, uh, which implies, um, and also a relatively low debt position, which implies that the country has room to provide some sort of fiscal stimulus. Um, and that's helped it score pretty well. And just generally across East Africa, you find that the economies are diversified both on the export side um, as well as on the GDP front, uh, which helps provide some impetus and you don't have one dominant sector dragging down growth. All of that said, though, what's been interesting was recently, as you know, in the past weekend, Rwanda has published its GDP numbers and there was a rather d- uh, deep contraction in the economy of around 12%. And I think what that's suggesting to us, if you recall, uh, just to give background, Rwanda is one of the countries we expected to do better. Uh, but what these numbers are telling us is that a stringent lockdown uh, would override a lot of the factors that I've mentioned. And as you're probably aware, Rwanda is probably uh, one of two countries that imposed a very stringent lockdown this year, the other being South Africa. And you are seeing that in the double digit um, decline in the case of Rwanda.
0: Okay. Um, thanks. Thanks for that. Very well covered um, around the issues of uh, COVID and um, subsequent implications for the continent and specifically East Africa. Now let's let's switch the discussion up a little bit. Let's talk about um, financial assets, particularly um, bonds. Now, Charlie, this this is for you, Charles, and uh, you know that the new decade is going to be very interesting for bond market. Very interesting indeed. Because we're likely to see a sort of continuation of uh, falling uh, of the yields of the long-term bonds in Western countries like uh, U.S., Germany, and and many others. And as such, we are likely to see many international investors opting to put their money in African bonds, which have consistently cost higher yields. So this means that African countries will have capacity to borrow further. But what does this mean for African government debt? And, you know, particularly what sort of borrowing arrangements should the African governments negotiate for in order to ensure utility maximization in this, this situation?
1: Yeah, the, the key point, as you said, was that we've got extremely low yields now in the West, um, down at around 0%, I guess, if you averaged out Germany, UK, US, France, and so on. Um, and, and there is this desire for yield that, People have always thought they should have something in bonds because that was the safe place to be. But when you get no yield on that at all, uh, it's it's not as attractive uh, for investors. So they're going into equities. And we've seen that in the U.S. stock market since March. Um, But they're also been putting their money into U.S. corporate bonds. um, And and there's starting to be a flow back into emerging market bonds. I think it's going to get much bigger if, uh, if Biden wins the election in the U.S., um, I think it's going to get much, much bigger. And, and people will then be saying, where can I get yield? Uh, and high single digits are still available from a number of African credits. The, the advantage of that is twofold. Firstly, you know, if, if countries do not increase their borrowing, then their, their borrowing costs, the interest payments they make on that borrowing is going to be much less. So governments will have more, uh, can save a bit of money, and reduce their budget deficits if they wish. Um, But I think more likely is the government's going to take advantage of this cheaper funding from the West um, and and try and grow faster. So it's a matter of choosing the right investment projects, um, prioritizing the essentials, which from from what we can see, education is absolutely essential um, to to help a country industrialize. Uh, The next essential is electricity. Um, but, you know, electricity has been quite expensive in East Africa because the borrowing costs to pay for that electricity have been quite expensive. But if the borrowing costs to roll out new electricity gets cheaper, then hopefully the electricity gets cheaper and then factories can start coming to Kenya and others in the region and, uh, and starting to manufacture. Um, I think the, le- the education numbers in East Africa are already pretty good. So governments need to be making sure they're investing in the right infrastructure um, and and also just making sure their yield curve is not too uh lumpy you don't want to have you know, 10 billion dollars worth of bonds all maturing coming coming due in 2025 you want to spread it out make sure there's something coming due in 2024 maybe a bit more a couple of years later a bit more a couple of years later don't have it all bunched up because you don't want to be in a position five years down the line where there's some global recession hitting again and no one wants to lend to anyone during the midst of a crisis, uh, and then you, you owe a load of cash back. You, you want to spread out your debt profile um, and, and try and, and perhaps restructure or, or, or pay back perhaps some of the more expensive bonds that have been issued in the past um, and take advantage of these lower interest rates. So there's quite a few things that I think governments could be making sure they do. Invest in the right way. Don't bunch up repayments in a few years' time to all come at the same time. And perhaps uh, repay some bonds early and uh, and use the lower interest rates to, to to lock in that that lower that
0: lower cost. Yeah, I, I definitely like what you talked about. You know, investments in education because that would be the key for us to improve our. Um industrialization process to grow manufacturing, because as Yvonne had mentioned, you know, agriculture is a huge component of African countries' GDPs, particularly East African countries. And um, we sort of saw a jump from agriculture-based economies to sort of service-based without a lot of emphasis on industrialization manufacturing in the past decades. But for sure, if we're able to get that right this decade, it's definitely going to be a good move for the future. So Yvonne, um, let me engage you on uh, the topic about GDP growth. So Renaissance Capital forecasts Kenya's GDP to grow at 1.5%. Um, we definitely have seen very many forecasts this year, um, some of them very, very conservative, including those of the IMF. could um, you please give some comments as to the rationale behind this forecast of 1.5% and what sort of underlying assumptions need to be, needs to hold for this work?
2: Okay. Thanks. So our main assumption around that is that, um, is that um, agriculture would grow this year. And I think the first quarter growth numbers were pretty encouraging in that regard. Um, We saw uh, 4.9% growth uh, for the economy and the large or the biggest driver of that was agriculture due to good rains. There'd been a lot of concern as you're probably, um, uh, you're closer to it, so you're probably more aware about what the locust swarms would mean um, for the agriculture sector. But uh, first quarter results at least showed that uh, they hadn't had a major impact uh, negatively, that is, on uh, the sector and by implication on growth. So our assumption is that um, the weather continues to be benign during the remainder of the year and that agriculture continues to grow. And that, as it accounts for uh, at least a fifth of uh, uh, GDP, it should help uh, these least um, 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 contributes to growth in that economy. And also from the second half of the year, as we've seen some easing of restrictions, uh, pick up on uh, services in particular, transport services resuming, uh, and also um, um, industries that have been shut down, such as manufacturing and our Uh, allowed to to resume that um, should also allow for um, uh, growth to pick up in the subsequent quarters, or at least the second half of the year. We still have second quarter GDP number for Kenya coming out, I think, next week. Uh, So um, that should give us some uh, better indication on how or what the outturn will be for 2020. But for now, we are still expecting positive growth out of Kenya uh, for this year.
0: Okay, thank you. Definitely looking forward to seeing how things um, unfold over the next coming of coming number of months. For sure, a lot of clarity will be obtained, maybe perhaps in later in the year or next year when um, a breakthrough is made in terms of a vaccination and there's more um, resilience and sort of certainty in the economy. Um, moving on, um, and this question is meant for you, Charles. So we know that the capacity for African countries to use domestic borrowing to finance their sort of revenue obligations, um, is it remains low, particularly because there are very high interest rates in Africa. And um, part of the reason we have high interest rates on the continent is because we have low savings rates. Um, and, you know, a lot of economic theory of, growth you know like the solo swan model they all talk about how savings as well as population growth are fundamental determinants of economic growth so please talk about how you know fertility rates in africa and countries are an integral component of this issue of why we do have high domestic um high domestic rates that and that. Make it very hard for African economies to self finance domestically over to you charles
1: yeah it's um yeah, this is this is kind of novel research i'm afraid so it's a little bit controversial, but we, you know we've been wondering and and bothered for years about the high domestic financing costs uh, and i've you know from country to country i 've heard different explanations for for why savings are are why it's so, much, so costly to borrow money. Um, so you know, Yvonne and I have been in Zambia uh, and Tanzania and, and asked them, why, the, why do the banks charge so much? Um, and this was obviously in light of Kenya's interest rate cap, um, but you know, we could see that there was a reason that the politicians pushed through that interest rate cap, uh, even if it wasn't, didn't, didn't lead to all the, the benefits they expected. And we go to some other countries, and then and they feel it's, it's uh, the capitalists who control the, the mines, the gold mines, or the oil companies. They're the ones who, who are taking the wealth, and, and this is why there's a shortage of savings. But I found this inc- fascinating paper out of China uh, to do with Chinese uh, development uh, a year or so ago. And it showed that over half of the growth in household savings could be directly attributed to a full. In the fertility rate. When the Chinese stopped having five or six kids per family, per woman uh, in the 60s, when that fell to under three kids per woman at the end of the 70s, even before the one child policy, Chinese savings started to dramatically increase. And I've spoken to a lot of people about this, and, and, and they say, well, it, it kind of makes sense. When you've got six kids, you haven't got much money left over for savings. Um, In fact, your kids are your savings. They're the ones who are going to look after you in your future. But you don't have any cash left over at the end of the month or even the end of the week to put into the bank. And therefore, the bank hasn't got any cash to lend out to the companies to invest or indeed to the government even. They will lend to the government, but it's going to be quite expensive because there's not much cash in the bank. When you start to have two to three kids per woman, then families save the kids because the kids become an investment rather than their savings and you want to you want to send that kid to the best school they can go to perhaps to university as well so you need to save for that and you start to save more money in the bank and then the bank has a load of cash and that bank can lend it out cheaply so you go to a country in africa like morocco or mauritius and what we have seen is that a fall in fertility rates has happened at the same time as a massive rise in savings rates. And governments in Mauritius and Morocco can borrow at 2% for a year. Companies can borrow not much more than that, 2% for a year. Now you can't do that in high fertility countries. So so what's what's really interesting to me now is to see which countries are we gonna see that fertility rate drop below three uh, in the next 10 to 15 years. And those countries are Egypt, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Ghana. And what I think that means is that interest rates should fall significantly in 10 to 15 years. And, and then governments can both borrow themselves more cheaply, companies can borrow more cheaply, um, and, and investment can be higher. And then you have this fantastic demographic dividend where there's not as many kids around. And as a result, more parents can go out to work, which means more people can work. And at the same time, savings in the banking system increase, which means interest rates come down. And it's a double demographic dividend. You've got more labor and cheaper capital at the same time. It's a fantastic combination. It's what's boomed East Asia in the way that it has done over the last 30 years. Uh, And it's happened in places like Morocco, have done well. Mauritius has obviously done very well helped by those same double demographic dividends and i think it's coming kenya's way in 10 years time
0: yeah well um it's it's definitely an elegant argument for sure you know um the issue of consumption smoothing which is one of the key factors that enable a household to save consumption smoothing is easier if you have a smaller household for sure because you know you can you can you, you have disposable disposable income And sort of the emphasis becomes on the quality over the quantity. And so definitely we are looking forward to what the new decade um, holds in terms of African countries. I know for sure Kenya had a very high fertility rate in the 70s, and um, this has gone down according to World Bank development indicators. It's really gone down. So let's see what the future holds. Of course, this is also a social debate. Maybe we shouldn't have had only economists. We should have called philosophers philosophers as well as other experts. (laughs) um but yeah time shall tell so yvonne i want to engage you um at this stage and talk about kenya's trade balance so um the covid 19 period is interesting because as i mentioned it was a multi-faceted talk um things were getting in on this side getting out on the other side and so some sectors for example the kenyan trade balance it remained fairly sort of stagnant without any um, increase or decrease on one specific side, because any fall in exports was kind of uh, accompanied by a fall in imports. Um, so, Yvonne, how do you see the trade balance behaving? How do you see it playing out when the global economies reduce uh, resume to pre-COVID trade dynamics?
2: Okay, uh, thanks for that. Um, so, let's take a step back to pre-COVID and see what trade balance looked like in Kenya mm. and. Kenya's trade balance since around 2015 um, improved. And the big reason for that um, was the fall in the oil price. And that helped uh, the current account uh, narrow, if you recall, from the high single digits, so 8 to 9% of GDP, to around 4 to 5% of GDP, which was very positive uh, for the external position of the country. However, our concern, even through that narrowing, which is a positive thing in itself, was that this did not reflect an actual improvement on the export side, which is what you want to see. It was actually due to the oil price coming off, which for us implied that Kenya would be at risk going forward if the oil price were to spike, because it implies that trade balance will deteriorate and your current account deficit return to the high levels that we had uh, earlier in um, the past decade. Now, going forward, uh, your question is what happens going forward. So as you rightly said, in this crisis, the uh, oil price falling has allowed for imports to fall, um, which was a good thing because it implied that when you had a a sharp decline in horticulture exports, the impact wasn't as severe on the trade balance in the current account because imports also fell off. So you had a much more moderate deterioration of your uh, current account. Um, Now, going forward, if you look at the oil price projections, um, I think our house view is that the oil price will average around $50 per barrel next year. Um, So it does imply that the oil price still remains relatively benign. We're not expecting any sharp increases or nothing close to what we had uh, pre-2015. That's a good thing for Kenya uh, because it it implies that they'll be able to contain uh, their trade balance. However, over the medium to long term, um, that is still something they need to, kind of need to be concerned about, in particular, improving its exports, uh, because its export to GDP ratio is actually uh, quite low and has been shrinking over the years from around uh, the, uh, the low teens uh, to less than 10%. Uh, And that needs to improve if the country wants to remain competitive and also if it it wants to keep from being vulnerable to changes um, in the oil price, Uh, because at some point it will turn against uh, Kenya. Um, So in the meanwhile, it would be good to see if there were uh, reforms or policies put in place to try and grow that export balance and improve it to levels that it was at a decade ago. Okay.
0: Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that, Yvonne. And um, definitely when we begin the discussion about the trade balance, we definitely need to, we start to talk about things like comparative advantage, some geopolitics. And um, on that topic of geopolitics, Charles, what do you see, in what ways do you see the upcoming U.S. presidential election playing into
2: the Kenya uh, shilling U.S. dollar exchange rates? Charles. Sorry about, yeah, sorry about that. Um, now
1: I, I, think, I think the election is going to be quite a big deal. Um, and the reason for this, for, with reference to Africa, is that um, Donald Trump has been an effective president in terms of getting foreigners to invest more in, Af- in, in the U.S. and, and an effective president in deterring U.S. companies from investing abroad. Um, and we've seen a net inflow to America of hundreds of billions of dollars of foreign direct investment in the last couple of years. And that's not normal. Normally you'd expect richer countries to say, where can my company go and operate more cost effectively? Um, We'll concentrate on the high value added in our domestic country, the UK, US, Germany, wherever. uh, And we'll, 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 we'll take advantage of this up and coming cheaper workforce that's better educated than ever um, in emerging markets. But that hasn't happened in the last two to three years under Trump. So I think what's going to happen, assuming Biden wins, um, and, and all US presidents who, who uh, preside over a recession in their first term, they all lose. So there's a good chance of Biden winning. Assuming Biden wins, I think that, that policy of trying to get all the investment back into the States will change. I think US companies will start to look abroad again. And I think Europeans and others who've been putting factories into America because they're so scared of the tariffs that Trump could impose can start instead to put factories where they actually make some more money on um, and, and which are more profitable for them. And I think that's going to be a dollar negative. So I suspect that will contribute to the US dollar being weaker. And that then in turn, along with the investment flows, starts to help out emerging markets. because emerging markets you know, when, when they see their currencies do relatively better against the dollar, they can sustain more dollar debt because it's a bit cheaper. Um, they, they tend to do uh, a little bit better on the terms, terms of trade issues as well. So I think what we should see is more money coming into emerging markets, more portfolio investment, more foreign direct investment, and the weaker dollar, all contributing to a, a better few years for emerging and frontier markets, um, at least in 2020 to 2025. Uh, beyond that, it depends on the next presidential election.
0: We'll see. <laughs> yeah, as, as any great economist would say, it depends.
2: <laughs>
0: um and for sure, I think another thing that will definitely be playing, um, we'll be moving things in that space would be the Kenya-US free trade agreement. We'll definitely see how that sort of um, plays out uh, after the election. So maybe after, after this thing settles down, we'll definitely have a follow-up podcast and see how our discussion might cause. Um okay. And um, Yvonne, now that you've been speaking about the shilling, I know you really look at the Kenya shilling quite a lot. Um, and I saw um, some Renaissance capital currency analysis where the Kenya shilling specifically was seen to be trading further away from its fair value uh, as compared to other East African currencies like you know, the Ugandan shilling and the Tanzanian shilling. So what are the factors that were leading to this um, misplacement of the Kenya shilling? Um, in terms of, you know, it's turning away from its fair value? And how do we see its valuation moving forward, Yvonne?
2: Okay. Um, so That's why so is the Canadian so shilling more uh, misaligned than uh, the other currencies in the region, including Uganda, Tanzania, and Rwandan currencies? Right. Uh, the main reason is because um, the shilling has not uh, depreciated as much in nominal terms as those other currencies have. And typically what you want to see is um, a currency um, depreciating at least by its rate of inflation on an annual basis. And Mm -hmm. because the shilling has remained, this is pre-COVID, has remained relatively stable um, despite uh, what's happening with inflation. Um, then you've seen um, it become a little bit more misaligned compared to its fair value. That's probably uh, the main reason uh, you see the Kenyan shilling turn out to be stronger um, than, uh, say, the Rwandan franc and Tanzanian shilling, which tend to, clo- uh, to trade closer to their fair values. And in terms of our outlook, we don't expect, at least over the short term, much change. It does help um, Kenya that its inflation has been moderating, uh, particularly during this crisis. That implies that its degree of misalignment falls, which is a good thing. Um, so that uh, helps uh, the shilling story. Um, but other than that, we do expect it to, to remain a little bit more misaligned uh, um, relatively to the other currencies or relative to, uh, to the shilling's zone fair value. Um, there's nothing to suggest in the horizon that that should change anytime soon.
0: Okay, okay. Well, thanks for that, guys. And um, as we come to a close of the session, we definitely have to talk a bit about the 6th um, the Annual Virtual East Africa Investor Conference, which was held by um, Renaissance Capital earlier this month, I think on the 9th and 10th of September. And um, both of you participated in a panel discussion session with um, the Deputy Governor of the Central Bank of Kenya, Shilam Bidjewe, as well as the IMF resident representative for Kenya, Mr. Tobias Rasmussen. So what were your biggest takeaways from this session which you might want to share with our audience? Let's begin with you, Charles, and then we'll come to the one. So over to you, Charles.
1: From my perspective, it's, it's that growth, it's the growth expectation. It's kind of phenomenal that you look around the world, you've got China, Taiwan, that's it. Able to grow in 2020. Uh, yeah, maybe one or two others. Vietnam might manage it, possibly Korea. But I think people are focused a little bit on East Asia doing reasonably well. But everybody else sitting there in the U.S. and Europe get very easily sucked into that idea that the whole world is just you know, collapsed. The, the economy is dreadful everywhere. Um, and it's it's really great to just hear a central banker say with credibility that there is we're going to be expecting growth this year. Um, and, and to see the IMF also come come alongside with that and say, hint that there'll be an upgrade in their forecasts um, coming out in the next month or so. So I think this is, this is just, I think it's all part of our hope and belief that, that we're going to see Africa outperform and that we uh, and that investors will start to put some money behind that. It was a very well-attended conference. And the only shame from our perspective is that we like to have the conference in Nairobi every year. That's where our office is. You know, this is, this is when we get everybody together in the right place and they see the country for themselves. Uh, it's a shame it had to be done online, but you know, that, that is what it is. Hopefully next year it will be back to normal.
0: Well, yeah, definitely 2020 is a year of um, everything virtual, but it, 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 it gives me joy to hear that the future is bright and um, this is a good time to be in Africa. This is a good time to be in Kenya. So that's encouraging news. Yvonne, what were your biggest takeaways?
2: It won't differ much from Charlie. I think for me, the most positive um, takeaway from that session was the IMF saying that they would likely be revising up their growth projection for uh, Kenya for 2020. As you know, they were predicting growth of negative 0.3%. I think out of the East African countries, it was only Kenya that they were expecting to see a decline in. It could actually turn out but possibly um, that it's Rwanda that has a a small decline. Uh, But anyway, our main takeaway um, from there is that Kenya will see growth this year. I think that's a very positive, encouraging story. It actually set up a great backdrop for the meetings that our clients had with the corporates uh, because certainly uh, if you're investing, as you can imagine, in East African firms or particularly in Kenyan firms, you want to hear that there's growth coming out on the macro side. And so um, that was really encouraging to hear.
0: Okay. Very well, guys. Um, thank you very much for a very interesting session, Charles and Yvonne. We, are, we at the Kenyan Wall Street were very happy to have you on this podcast and we hope that our audiences also enjoyed the conversation. Thank you guys so much. Um, could you share with our audiences how they can get in touch with you either via social media or, or how, how can um, they follow up the discussion with you or check out some of the work that Rencap is doing? Yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, I, I do tweet quite a lot. So, at yes, Ren, that man man is is always, uh, you know, a forum to, to engage with me, um, as well as our office in Nairobi as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yvonne?
2: I'm also on Twitter, uh, if I remember correctly, my handle is at Yvonne <laughs> Hongo. So, um, yes, I'm accessible, not as active as Charlie, but uh, I will respond to messages via Twitter
0: okay thank you guys and uh, you can also follow us at kenyan wall street on twitter and you can also get in touch with me at prince underscore muraguri so thank you guys it was a lovely session stay safe everyone and um, see you on the next podcast